Hi again, I'm Jack Lesenberry, and welcome or welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. For many years, I wrote a nationally award-winning column, Politics and Prejudices, and did radio essays on both public and commercial radio. And this is meant to be a blend of both for what, for many people, is still a fairly new format. So I hope you enjoy today's installment and keep listening. You can also catch up with both my writing and any essays and podcasts you may have missed on my website and blog. That's LessonberryInc.com. It's ink as an ink pen. Over the years, I've covered a lot of stories in many states and many countries, met a lot of fascinating people. I want to use these podcasts to bring some of them and their stories to you, plus give you my unique and sometimes slightly sardonic take on things. By the way, I also plan to end most of these podcasts with my signature essays, so please listen, sitting down, lying down, or standing up. And I hope you enjoyed today's, and again, please follow me on my blog. Now for today's topic. I think one of the worst things that could happen to anybody would be to be falsely accused and then convicted of a crime you never committed. Worse yet, a crime that involves sexually abusing a small child, which for most of us is one of the most horrible and repulsive things we can imagine. Well, that's exactly what Louise O'Connell, a successful bank executive, believes happened to her husband's Jim, who was semi-retired from his construction business. Jim was a man who believed in giving back to his community and put in many hours of volunteering at his church in the Detroit suburb of Troy and later at a preschool located there. He had no prior record of any sexual misbehavior. There was, and is, absolutely no evidence, physical evidence, that he did anything wrong, but one day, a child had graduated from the preschool long before, said he touched her. And now, incredible as it may sound, he's likely to be in a Michigan prison for the rest of his life. His wife once said the easy thing would be for her to just walk away, but she can't. She can't, not only because she loves him, but because she knows her husband is innocent. For the past five years, she's devoted her life and her life savings to finding a way to free him. With me in the studio today is Louise O'Connell, who has flown in from Texas, where she now lives and works, and also Bill Proctor, who for more than 30 years was one of the state's best investigative reporters on the air with WXYZ-TV, or Channel 7, as we old-timers used to call it. Also, Raj Mehta, a licensed social worker and a therapist who knew Jim O'Connell, has an opinion about his case. So, Raj, Bill, Louise, thanks for making time for us today. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. Louise, let's start with you. This is really an incredible and shocking story. So your husband had never been accused, had no prior convictions of anything. Oh, absolutely so not. He had no, a little trouble you. when he was a teenager, as most of us do. But here we have a 60-year-old man. And so tell us just real briefly what happened. Um, my husband is one of those people that is just so naturally kind, giving, and generous. Mm-hmm. And so he helped out at our church. I mean, he was one of those people, the super volunteer. Anything they needed, he was there to do. And the church ran a daycare, had a daycare program located yeah. in a, a preschool, I should yeah, say. Yeah, and it was independently run. It wasn't as if you had church members in the daycare. It was to attract outside members into the church. That was the whole idea. Or outside, outside right. um, individuals. And so he volunteered to help there, too. He he was asked. He actually didn't volunteer initially at all. Um, for the first 10 years the preschool was in operation, he had nothing to do with it, actually. Um, he didn't even want the preschool there because he thought it would be a financial drain on the school. But it got voted in, and he you know, accepted that, but he didn't help at all. So he did maintenance work. Occasionally he, he would do things for the kids. He taught them how to play marbles. Not until with really the last couple of years. Um, really, he didn't help out at all, and then it slowly started where he helped out in small capacities like maintenance-type activities. And then over time, he started helping out a little bit with the kids, very small in comparison to his overall volunteer time. But he didn't teach the kids. Oh, absolutely not. He didn't run a classroom. He didn't want to run it. You know, that was right. the intent, yeah. So one day, so how, how, how did he get accused? How did this all happen? God only knows. You know, it's just one of those things. Uh, 
it, it started out um, with a mother that thought he was too nice. I mean, that's really what happened. You know, he was helping So she out. was bathing her daughter one night. Exactly. We got the complaint on, in May of 2013. Okay. And it, all we knew was that a preschool parent had filed a complaint. Had no idea what it was or anything. Um, and so, you know, we were, you know, obviously concerned. What would it be? Um, and Jim had no clue at all. And we thought, could it be sexual assault? You know, because a lot of times right. you think of a preschool. And I asked Jim, he's like, absolutely not. I mean, there was nothing there that he would ever, you know, he couldn't think of anything. He goes, I'm never alone with a kid. How could that even, you know, how would right. I even be accused? Um, as the case went on, we started to learn what happened. The mother was very um, suspicious of Jim, although he had no idea. And um, she ended up questioning her child after she graduated from the preschool. And the child said, no, nothing ever happened. And the mother actually uh, singled Jim out in discussions with her child about boundaries and that kind of thing. But nevertheless, the child never said anything for a whole year, never had a complaint, nothing about the school. In fact, she was thriving at the school, which is just ironic. Um, but it wasn't until a year later, now the ch child's not even in the school anymore, doesn't even see Jim. And now her mother's giving her a bath, and, um, and the mother confronts her child because she had just had a conversation that day with a friend about molestation. Right. And the friend had said, well, sometimes kids are told not to tell. So suddenly the mother is thinking the child lied when right. she initially denied anything. And so suddenly the words like, um, tell the truth this time, and uh, if kids that don't tell the truth suffer as an adult, and suddenly the child now had a revelation. The child she, is now seven years old? She's uh, six at this time, six, almost seven. And, and this is for claims. She's sure. claiming from ages four and five when she was at the preschool. So she basically said, uh, no way of getting around easily, that Mr. Jim, as she called him, had licked her private area. That's what was claimed in the bathtub, right. yes. And so uh, the family went down and made a police complaint. What happened from there? Well, from there, it seemed as if the complaints just grew and grew and grew. And we do know that there was questioning done at the police station, although none of that was documented. Complaints by this one child. Only this one child. child. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is this strictly this one child. And not only that, um, we know discussion happened with the mother on the, and the father on the way to the police station because their written statement at the police station was very robust. It had a lot of detail. So in you're it. thinking they may have put ideas in her head. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the danger with these cases. So how did the legal system... So we've got this now... The child was physically examined. Did she show any signs of having been? Oh, absolutely not. Not. And her yeah. demeanor didn't fit either. Right. So what proceeds? So basically you have only this one child. This one child said that this man had repeatedly performed oral sex on her. And uh, so how did the law enforcement authorities handle this? What happened? Um, there was a detective from the Troy police who immediately worked on the case, and she immediately assumed he was guilty. That's how she operated. She was biased in it from the start. And she interviewed everybody multiple times. She had people crying at the pre you know, preschool teachers crying um, because she was saying Jim did this, and basically she was asking questions. But the problem with her questions is she wasn't specific on what school year so, but, so or let, anything. So, so let's just sort of move along just to get the nutshell of the story yeah. to people. So one day you're out riding your bikes, and what happened? I had a strange feeling that we were being followed, but I looked around and I didn't see anything. And then within, as we were heading back home, all of a sudden we were being um, swarmed by police officers. And Jim was arrested publicly in our, in our neighborhood. As if he were Don Corleone. Absolutely. And, uh, it was so over the top. 
except, I, except I, Don Corleone probably be allowed to surrender himself. Yeah. So so, so he gets taken the he gets yeah. charged with a whole raft of four charges. Four charges. Which not initially. Initially right. there was we there was one, but right. it grew. But all concerning this one child. Right. And he was convicted of everything. He was convicted of everything. Mm. Yeah. And not because there was any evidence, and not because he was guilty, but because of the shenanigans that are placed played in the courtroom. Well, we'll, get, we'll, we'll I'll come back to that, but I just want to get the basic story out for you. So he gets convicted, and he gets then he gets given, the judge gives him what amounted to a life sentence. Yes. And so he can't get out before he's 86, and they can hold him, I think, until he's 111. Yes. Again, this is a man who has no prior convictions as an adult of any kind. That's right. So, Bill Proctor, you've covered, I don't know how many trials. Maybe you don't know either in your day, and seen you know, okay, case. Um, have you ever think? what do you think about this? Have you ever seen anything quite like this? Well, my concern, <clears throat> evaluation, deep dives into actual innocence claims, literally started when I was still a reporter, and right. all the way back to 1994-95. Since that time, in retirement from television in 2013, I have been a licensed private investigator. You have your own company. Yes, and was hired by Louise and Jim to essentially look at what the history of this this situation was. I went to meet Jim. Uh, <clears throat> I found a, uh, uh, a pained, broken person who insisted that there was no way that there was any place in his life for any of what he was uh, accused of and convicted of. This was after he was in prison? Yes. From the prison visit, I talked to some of those very people who had been interviewed by Christine Schuler. The Troy detective, detective, the Troy detective, and they felt that they literally had been abused. Uh, that the uh, abused by the legal system, uh, abused right. by the detective, right, who right. essentially was over the top and very insistent that they answer her questions the way she wanted to hear them answered, which would have indicated through these people that somehow Jim was guilty of something they never saw, and they made it very clear that that was the case. Mm. So by the time it's over, you have a man who has spent his entire life in a suburban neighborhood raising his own children. He, the house, the wife, the man, always surrounded by children, never any hint of anything untoward or problematic, not of any age, nothing on his computer, nothing in his work life. The only problem that ever surfaced is this one child with a very intense mother. I have listened to a lot of people who have had face-to-face -face relationships with her as the mother of the child in a classroom, and they say this woman is at least a piece of work, if not something that sounds like uh, a diagnosis of problem. Mm -hmm. So what we have is a woman who very clearly could have influenced what this child had to say, And in addition to that, uh, there, there were just uh, other elements of what pointed much too strongly to innocence. I also was able to go to the Oakland County Courthouse and see uh, what the child said from the stand. My goodness. Um, it was like a speech out of central casting. It was very tight. There was no emotion, despite the fact that this child was talking about being abused by an adult. She'd learned her part, in other words. Very much so, and 
even though every now and then there was, I don't remember that kind of thing, mm-hmm. it was just incredibly polished and I'm sure very convincing for the jury. Louise, you have kids. Bill, you have kids? Yes. I mean, so you know how seven-year-olds normally talk. Yes. And that, that was not how they tell a story. It was, it was uh, quite polished. Now, Raj Mehta, you are a professional therapist. You talk to people. You, you look at people's problems. You know Jim O'Connell. Yes. Well, you've talked to him. What's your assessment of, uh, I mean, do you think, was this somebody who could have done this? Well, the answer, in my opinion, as a professional is no. But let's begin with some more context. Sure. When the, an airplane crashes to the ground, when we have a great tragedy, when something really, really bad happens, when everyone gets really, really honest, there's plenty of blame to go around. So we have a systemic failure, right? Right. This happened because of systemic failure. A person that's a law-abiding citizen is going to assume that if he participates in an investigation, tells the truth, he'll be found not guilty. Right. The man doesn't lawyer up, which is your first time. That's kind of interesting. How come you don't lawyer up immediately? Because we all believe what we're taught in civics class. Yes, right. So the odds of basically, you know, the person having this kind of issue, there's going to be patterns. My job is to look for discrepancies and patterns. I do have some uh, sexual uh, deviance and also people convicted of sex crimes on my caseload, all right? And so when we look at that and we begin to right. investigate that, when people begin to really tease the knot apart, well, I didn't see this coming, I didn't know about this and that, after the conviction, that's when everyone kind of has the courage to say, well, I remember when he did this, or I heard about this rumor, and I heard about that. Right. And see, with, with Jim O'Connell, after being convicted, where's all the people out of the woodwork? Where's everyone rallying and saying, we finally got this guy? Right. And secondarily, when you look at the issues of you know, patterns, right, how is it possible that he's exposed to all these children for many, many years, right, with no allegations at all whatsoever? So the assumption is a man was able to contain these urges for decades, absolute decades, and then finally act on these urges in one specific setting with one child. And you look at the issues of looking at the legal system. If you want to give someone the conviction of a crime like this, they should get a formal mental health evaluation from a psychiatrist. They were going to spend four hours with you and evaluate you for everything, personality disorders, anxiety disorders, PTSD, sexual deviancy. That wasn't done. And so we look at when people are falsely convicted of something, right, especially when there's sexual allegations, there's certain patterns and reasons why people do something, right? So when a person uh, claims of being accused of rape or molestation and they're lying, they fit certain patterns for that. One of the patterns can be just a classic thing of trying to get some money. Other pattern can be because they were doing something wrong and they want to have someone else to blame. They were too young when they did that. But if, if the mother has some issues going on and you're going to convict a man of a, of a crime like this, the mother should have gotten a formal mental health evaluation. There's a famous thing called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And there was a this stunning discovery by psychologists. Moms keep bringing their kids into hospital settings. The kids keep becoming sick. Some of the parents are poisoning their children, giving them arsenic, making them very, very ill. Like, why would someone do that? And it comes down to the bottom line for attention. Right. So when you're going to convict someone like this, at the very least, a good lawyer would say, I want to subpoena all the records of this woman's text messages and emails. Are her and her husband having problems? Is she talking to other people? Does she have issues that are going on? And then when this does, does go down, the motivation, is there, is there a reason why? Is she trying to save a marriage, right? Is there some way that this attention is going to benefit her in some way? Is she feeling lonely or isolated? Right. Because she was, she was at, or Jim was asked if he was having an affair with her on the stand. Right. But uh, uh, and he said no, but I think that's all that went on. Right. 
And so the, the idea is that, once again, going back to patterns, you have to look for exclusion. Why? When a person's going to be presenting with a case, as far as I recall, the defense attorney talked about, you know, he didn't do this. If I'm sitting on the jury, I want to know, well, why would the kid lie? Right. And if you don't give me a reason why the kid would lie, I'm going to have to say, well, he must have been doing this because why would the kid lie? Now, Louise, there are cases, there are occasions when the child did demonstrably lie, right? She said Absolutely. that your husband broke in her house in the middle of the night and stole her marbles. Oh, Jay, there were so many things. And, right. you know, I'm a, a CPA, and so mm -hmm. I get into the detail. Right. I actually cross-reference her statements at forensic interview, three months later at this preliminary hearing, and then at the trial. This kid's all over the board. Mm -hmm. And there's blatant lies. In I fact, there's lies where she said something happened, and then three months later said, no, that never happened. I have to ask you, and, and in fact, if Bill has an opinion, he can chime in, uh, what kind of lawyer did you have? I mean, it would seem to me that your lawyer ought to have been challenging it on some of the grounds you mentioned, some of the grounds Raj mentioned. Yeah. Um, our attorney, we liked her when we first met her, but we did not know she was pregnant with her fourth child. And we also didn't know, as things progressed, that she was having a high-risk pregnancy. Um, she assured us, oh, no problem, no issue, I can handle this, yada, yada. And she ended up uh, defending my husband within weeks of delivering a baby. Right. She was not on top of her game well, at I, all. And we watched her. In, well, I wasn't in the courtroom. I was sequestered. But my brother and son and many others, and they all said the same thing. She was horrible. Did you appeal the case after the guilty verdict? We did. And what we happened? It, it, after 18 months, you know, because it takes quite a while to process right. an appeal, we were denied. What percentage of appeals? Well, uh, we've since learned it's 99 point, I don't remember. Seven, what, I think. 99.7% percent of the appeals in Oakland County um, are, are get rejected, basically. That's or they that, stand in the favor wow. of Oakland County. We had no idea it was that razor slim. I mean, we could have I could have bought a Ferrari and had it in our driveway mm -hmm. then try to go through an appeal. And did you appeal to the Supreme Court? We did, twice. So, and they did never accepted the application. So what are your options now? Bill, what can she do now? Um, it's really a difficult position. <clears throat> I mean, it, it's to the point where the primary actor the witness against Jim literally has to grow up and come to terms with the fact that she might have been manipulated and eventually admits to what mother and detective created, which was a story implanted in the child, and because she's got a great memory, she was able to deliver. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's one of those things where um, we have seen enough pressure, um, even to the point of misconduct on the part of this detective. We, we have a situation where defense counsel was clearly distracted. I'll, I'll, right. be, I'll be kind with that um, because the, the notion is that there are many things. Had she even talked to Raj, for goodness sake, uh, probably could have come up with a half dozen approaches to what this defense could have and should have been. Isn't ineffective counsel a grounds for appeal? It is. It's very difficult, though, when you literally have other people with P numbers, and right. you're 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 a lawyer with a P number and a license. Um, so other people tell us what a P number is for the uninitiated. <laughs> it, it actually is the state registration right. for someone who is a licensed and practicing attorney. Right. And judges are, uh, uh, prosecutors are. In other words, it's a part of the club. Right. And it's very very difficult to convince another club member that someone uh, assigned to defense essentially fell short. It really has to be glaring. It really has to be very specific. 
It doesn't matter the long list of things they didn't do on behalf of the client. It is, okay, so what you did do doesn't appear to be uh, something that was out of bounds right. or actionable against them. So the answer to the question is, this is going to be one of those situations where we are looking for the next determination that this whole process fell short, right. that, that an innocent man is on the inside of a prison. And yes, I have seen this so many times before because as good as our package of laws and appeals appears to be on the outside from our civics classes, as right. you said, the real bottom line is that all of this is a human endeavor. And yep. in many, many cases, what drives a wrongful conviction has to do with human failure or shortcoming. In this case, you've got the added burden that uh, uh, a gov governors can pardon people or they can commute sentences. And if a governor commutes sentences of someone who stole a car 20 years ago, but, but uh, you know, there's not going to be a lot of negative blowback. But the ultimate child, there's a child molester. If the governor were commute a child molester sentence and the child molester was to do it again, that would be political suicide for the, the governor. So politicians tend to play on, they, CYA is sort of their, tends to be their model. But do you envision, Bill, I mean, is there a scenario where you could turn up something that would cause the courts to reopen these, this case? It's really difficult because, one, you have a child victim. Right. Even after all these years, the victim is still a child at only 11, 12, 13 years old. I'll, I'll right. take it that window. And you have a family that is in many, many ways, affected, controlled, terrified by the mother of the victim. Mm -hmm. I can say that because I have had the discussions with a very close relative who essentially has been cast out of her association with that child and other children because of the overbearing nature of the mother of the victim. These are very complicated things. Right. Uh, I can take the wrong step, and I can have a noose around my neck, but never mind me. Right. The key here is finding something that is actionable in the court system, in the appeal system, in the truth-finding elements of what needs to happen. Do you think that the appellate judges were remiss in not looking at this case? Um, I, I, didn't see, I didn't see uh, anything in that process that stands out to me. But then, too, I'm not an, I'm not an attorney, um, you know, just, just an old reporter and a private investigator. And, yeah, I, I might have missed things. You're not an attorney, what, but you've seen an awful lot of them in action. I've, yes. But um, it, it struck me, you know, there was a case, I'm sort of haunted by this, there's a case of a, there was a kid named Neil Reddick. There was a poor man named Neil Reddick, and his, uh, he was living with a woman, and her son, by previous marriage, said that he had sexually abused him a couple of years ago. There's no physical evidence of this. It's a very similar case to uh, Jim O'Connell's. He gets convicted, same sentence, appeal denied, appeal Supreme Court denied. Fourteen years later, the kid gets a guilty conscience that I made it all up because my, my mom wasn't any fun. I wanted to live with my dad and my dad. So we have to come up with something drastic to get the courts to change custody. And so this guy gets out. He gets, you're now compensated $50,000 a year if, you, if you're totally exonerated, but he lost his life. He lost his life. I don't know how, how, many, how much you could get that by terms of compensation. Luis, life in prison is not a picnic for anybody. No. And uh, this is not a fun, a, a fun thing. Not for a 66-year-old man right. and, who's got uh, health issues. Health issues. He's in, uh, 
Bellamy Creek in, in Ionia. Yes, which yes. Which is a fairly tough prison. Mm-hmm. How is he enduring this? Well, Jim's always had a wonderful spirit, and he continues to have that in mm-hmm. prison. So um, that's what sustains him. Um, he he leads the Bible studies. Mm-hmm. He um, helps tremendously in the prison system with maintenance and painting. And he builds the gardens and whatnot. So he, he's surviving, right. not happy. He still doesn't understand why he's there. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see what he ever did wrong. We should say also, and this this is not, you have a marriage in which you were the major breadwinner. Bread yes. He actually was somewhat of a caregiver to the kids. He has his own business, and he put it, but you were the major breadwinner. Yeah, I don't need and his money, you, yes. You, you, you know, this is not a case of uh, um, somebody who's dependent on their husband's income, but uh, you're still you're still fighting. Now, you have, uh, what do you have in the works? You're working on a website, aren't you? I am. Um, I want to just mention, Jack, that, you know, I have, spent many dark nights of my soul. Right. What do I do as the wife of a convicted child molester? Because the reality is, I know, I've studied the evidence more than anybody. I know this case is a sham. I completely know it. What do I do? And I've come to the conclusion that I am going to stick with my husband and because we have truth on our side. And that's just who I am. I mean, I could throw it all away and go live my life and just say, well, too bad. But, you know, at the end of the day, I have to look at myself in the mirror, and I am not going to turn my back on a man who I know 100% is innocent. But as anyone who's been a journalist for a long time can tell you, that you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You have to make noise. So you're going to start a website. I have a web page. You've, yeah. you've got a book I'm that's writing a book. finished yep. But, uh, yep. on your husband's case, and you're going to do everything you can to bring this to the public's attention. I am. I am. It's something that needs to be done. I think the pendulum, there are children clearly that have been molested, and I think the way that society's right. handled it in the past has been problematic. They covered it up, right? They covered it up and whatnot. But I, the pendulum today has gone way the other way, mm-hmm. where all you need is a child to say something, and everyone believes them, and you're dead. I don't even know why we have a trial, quite frankly. They should just throw Jim in jail right then and there, because that's how it really, it was a farce other than that. Raj, anything you can add to that? You know these people, you know. Is, is there some endemic flaw in the legal system in cases like this? It becomes a despicable discourse because we have two things we're talking about that are very uncomfortable. We have child molestation and the conviction of a person uh, who was wrongly convicted. And we as a society don't want to look at either one of those things because it's very uncomfortable. We want to believe that when a person tells the truth in court, they're going to be exonerated because they told the truth in court. We don't think about you know the motivations of people. Uh, one lawyer that I spoke with, he said, you know, very clearly, had this case occurred in Wayne County, it would never have been prosecuted. So right. even depending upon what, what county you live in is the issue of prosecution. And we've seen a, a recent case with a woman and um, her running around a different uh, prosecutors to finally have her um, ex-husband and his stepfather charged with molestation of their child and what goes on with that. I think it's a real shame. It's a travesty. Um, I remember the Troy police actually po- posted when Jim was arrested um, about the church where it happened, and if anyone else had any uh, allegations, or they cast out this really wide net. Sure. And what's really interesting about that is that nobody came forward. So with this wide net being cast out, here's a safe time right now. The man's been arrested. He's in jail right now. Now it's time to come forward with your kids and talk about this, but yet nobody came forward. And having spoken and having permission to discuss what, you know, what the family has told me, having spoken with his son and daughter you know, after he's been incarcerated, I'm like, in a private setting, were there any signs when you guys had sleepovers? Right. Did Dad ever do anything or act any way inappropriate? And they're clearly telling me with tears in their eyes, nothing, nothing at all. 
somebody, somebody, of, somebody doesn't all of a sudden develop a pathological sexual attraction to children at age 60. I mean, it, it's just in, in, in the same way of looking at that, right? And so the other pattern is that, you know, with, with all that being said, now is the time where everyone can come out and place additional accusations on Jim O'Connell, and they're not doing that, which kind of right. you know, begs to show this is not right. It doesn't fit any of the patterns. And, Bill, thanks to DNA, we've learned m more that there's a terrifying number of people who've been, who served long prison sentences who are totally innocent. DNA certainly has helped. Uh, but in this situation, you've, you've right. got to look at other human elements of right. the overall circle effect. This man was uh, over-the-top, kind, open, loving, caring, giving, uh, and also was a perfectionist. I'm sure our, 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 our very smart doctor here is going to be able to tell us that you don't do miter cuts in a house with such precision from the bottom of it to the top to take an 800-square-foot little box and turn it into a 2,800-square-foot show place, which is palace, what he did with your home. Yes, yeah. which yes. Is what, which is what he did over a number of years. Um, you don't concentrate on those kinds of things and think at the same time, gee, well, where's the child I can go touch? I mean, it, yeah. it just it, none of this matches. No. And so by the time you, you're, you're done, especially just to have the one, to have the police cast the net publicly, to have one other woman who had a child in that same school come up and provide some sort of statement on the stand to essentially somehow diminish uh, Jim's never being in a position to be alone with a child. And she said, well, he walked my child to the parking lot. And I'm saying, wait a minute. That's it? You didn't say he somehow touched the child? He walked the child to the parking lot and you went to court and went on the stand to hurt him in that way? I'm sorry. There are just too many elements of this that make me feel very strongly. And, and briefly, and Louise, a lot of the allegations, they said, for example, he would take this child on a regular basis out of class, take her to a garage that turned out couldn't be open, put her in there and molest her in there and bring her back in sort of full public view. Right. And the garage, again, it was not right. a garage right. where you put a car in. Right. It's jam-packed. You had to take things out of the right. garage. But we had a smoking gun, Jack. Here's the amazing thing. This kid claimed frequently she would go to this garage with Jim, and Jim would look out this particular window. Mm. Well, what she didn't know was when she was enrolled in the school, there was a shed blocking the view. So he couldn't look out the window. He couldn't look out the window. But, uh, and he still got convicted right. of that claim, sure, of that charge. Of anything. So, Bill, but by the way, Bill, what, your firm, Bill Proctor & Associates, what kind of work do you do now? Who, what kind of clients do you look for? Well, I'm a licensed private investigator in Michigan, um, but I have concentrated on actual innocence claims and, um, and what are just a horrific list of wrongful convictions, and I can say that without having to say alleged, because... Um, I, I can proudly say that the University of Michigan Law School has what is now called the Innocence Clinic, or actually it is a, it is a, a teaching clinic uh, inside their law school, where they now have a list of 6,000 applicants. Wow. 6,000. And even since they were created and, I guess, launched in 2009, uh, they have, they're moving to their uh, two dozen people who are now out of prison, many of them from Wayne County, but some of them from Oakland County. So 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to say that literally the, the law school clinic exists because of me and both the founders say so, but that's, that's not what's important. The fact that, is that over and over and over again, human failure, human shortcoming, pressures to get cases closed have led to wrongful convictions instead of good police work that might have gotten the right person instead of the wrong person. So the, the, the entire motivation of the court system is to drive for conviction. Well, the, the, the court system is supposed to hear facts. Right. The, the court system is supposed to essentially set in motion a fair hearing and evaluation of what the police say and what the person who is charged has to say about their innocence or guilt. And it's all supposed to be reasonably fairly evaluated, and essentially you move to the judge to make a decision and essentially come to a sentence. The problem is that there are just too many shortcomings to the process I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that only a small number of cases ever go to trial. If the system would collapse, they couldn't handle it. So there's a lot of pressure on people to plead guilty to, they charge you with first-degree murder. I say, look, plead guilty to second-degree murder. In your case, Jim wasn't offered a plea bargain. He wasn't offered a plea, and he wouldn't take one but, anyway. But, but the point is, looking back, we but, should, he should have. I mean, the but, outcome would have been easier for him. Well, we, we, exactly. But of course, they figured they didn't have to. They right. wanted to make an example of him. But Jim is one of those people. He wouldn't. He couldn't plead to something he didn't do. Right. It's just at the end of the day, there's no way. But, uh, so, um, what's your website going to be called? Free Jim now. Free Jim now. When do you anticipate it'll be up and running? By January sixth of twenty twenty. So it'll be www.freejimnow. Yeah. Dot com. Dot yep. com. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Raj, any final comments? Well, I appreciate everyone being here and, and talking about this. You know, it's a great deal of courage. There's so many people that have been, you know, falsely accused and convicted. And, and as, uh, you know, Bill mentioned is that, you know, with DNA, it's so much easier to show that you're absolutely wrong. We have no DNA in this the case. case of tragedy. We, we right. have no medical examination that indicated right. anything happened at all. And so we have a failure, if you want to go in a different direction, of the mental health services and the mental health evaluators who should have been involved before anyone gets convicted of a major sex crime, there needs to be a formal mental health evaluation of that individual right. and of the accusing parent, just so we can kind of ferret out any kind of motivations that might tie back into that thing called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, right? So what's the motivation for a false accusation from a child? And you made a great point of saying sometimes it can be as simple as, I won't want to live here, I want to live someplace else. But the stakes are so high, and as Louise pointed out, People are being convicted of just the comments from a child, and children by their very nature are very easily manipulated and persuaded by adults and adult rewards. And even look at, at a bad interview from a professional, you can see nonverbal cues coming from the right. face. Did that person touch you there? Hint, hint, right? You respond correctly, I give you the eye contact, you don't, I look away. These kids are very perceptive, and lots of especially them... Especially with a parent, especially with your mother. Absolutely. You know? Did you clean your room? Yes, I cleaned my room. Absolutely. Just, uh, absolutely. And so we don't hear the uh, indication of any kind of proper forensic interview, impartial interview done with the child in a safe setting to discuss what had happened. And Louise pointed out very clearly, there's so many discrepancies just in the testimony alone. Mm -hmm. How do you convict when you have that many discrepancies on testimony? Well, I, th I think maybe we have to leave it there, but I'd like to say finally that we we would like to see the courts observe our standard that you shouldn't have conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And I don't know how anyone could look at this case and think that that standard had been met. Agreed. So, but uh, 
Bill, Bill Proctor, Bill Proctor Associates, Raj Mehta. What's the name of your uh, of your practice, oh, sir? Serenity Therapy Center. SerenityHelp.com. I could use a lot of Serenity Help myself. <laughs> Louise O'Connell, thank you all thank for being you. here. I really appreciate it. Well, that's about it for now, except for my signature essay coming up. By the way, I want to thank everyone who's donated to help fund the cost of this podcast, including Greg Ward, who owns and operates the Detroit Windsor Truck Ferry, and Kurt Metzger, the demographer and mayor of Pleasant Ridge, who was a guest on last week's podcast. YouTube'd like to help keep these podcasts going. I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via the Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street, Plymouth, Michigan, 48170, or message me on Facebook or via my blog for more details, or just leave a sack of gold coins outside the back door. This is Jack Lesenberry. Stand by for my essay. I think most of us believe that if someone's in prison, they're probably a basically bad person and are almost always guilty of what they were charged with. That's especially true if you happen to be white and at least middle class. Many years ago, I had a friend who was an old public defender from the Bronx. Tony, I once asked him, were any of your clients ever innocent? Not really, he said. Some of them were innocent of what they were accused of, but none of them were ever really innocent. I thought that was mostly right. The trials I had covered were mostly those of really bad guys. Jim O'Connell, by the way, thought so too. Once, years ago, he happened to be driving by the old state prison of southern Michigan and Jackson, rolled down the window, and yelled, losers at the inmates, embarrassing his wife. But then, it seems to have happened to him. I came to the story with an open mind with the assumption that, despite his wife's admirable loyalty, he probably was guilty, at least to some degree. However, after looking at this case in detail, I think exactly the opposite. In this society, anyone accused of sex crimes is automatically presumed guilty, and even in those rare cases where their innocence is established beyond the shadow of a doubt, some taint still tends to cling to them. Once, talking about such a case with an old minister, he shook his head and said, Well, he may not have done that, but I always say, where there's smoke, there's fire. If you look at the O'Connell case and substitute any other alleged crime and present the same quality of evidence, you get a case that will be thrown out of court. What if some child reported that two years ago, when she was four, she saw Mr. Jim stealing a shirt from Brooks Brothers in Somerset Mall? There are no witnesses. No such shirt can be found in his closet. Brooks Brothers' records don't show anything missing, and the store's attendants are constantly watching. That case wouldn't be thrown out of court. It wouldn't even get there. But in this case, we had a bubbly child saying bad things had been done to her, and a public now sensitized to the fact that there are indeed child predators in their midst. There are indeed predators. We also know now that there are people in Michigan prisons who are indeed innocent, totally innocent. I'm haunted by the story of Neil Reddick, who accused by his girlfriend's son of having sexually abused him years before. There was no evidence, but Neil, like Jim O'Connell, was sentenced to what amounted to life. It is until 14 years later when the boy who accused him got a guilty conscience and admitted he made it all up because he wanted his mother to lose custody so he could go live with his dad. I don't know if the little girl who accused O'Connell ever have a similar change of heart. I don't even know if she really knows what the truth is. But I do know that our courts need to remember and enforce our ancient rule that conviction requires proof beyond any reasonable doubt. I don't see that standard as having been met here. This is Jack Lessonberry. Thanks for listening and hope you come back for our next podcast.